Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first property casualty insurance podcast, bringing you perspective and insight on the top issues facing industry professionals. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Kathy Imus. Today, we're uncovering Hurricane Michael, the destruction brought on by this latest natural disaster, and how the newly signed Disaster Recovery Reform Act offers hope for the future. Plus, hands-free driving, how Georgia's new law is already making an impact, and the mutual factor. We break down the new benchmark analysis that validates long-held assumptions about the mutual sector. But first, a look at some of the top stories in the news today. One week since Rory Lawn Shore, estimates put the insured losses from Hurricane Michael between 8 and $10 billion. The historic storm made landfall in the Florida panhandle, bringing winds of 155 miles per hour, just two miles per hour shy of Category 5 status. That makes Hurricane Michael the fourth largest hurricane to reach the U.S. since record-keeping began in the 1850s. The damage by Hurricane Michael may have exposed a weak spot in Florida's statewide building code, namely that the rules aren't up to par across much of the panhandle. The codes are strongest in hurricane-prone South Florida, but become less stringent the further you move up the peninsula. NAMIC believes the recently enacted Disaster Recovery Reform Act will help refocus the federal government on proactively preparing communities before the next catastrophe, while freeing up new resources for states and localities to implement and enforce resilient building codes. Automated vehicles recently received a new show of support from the federal government. The U.S. Department of Transportation announced its third round of guidance aimed at prioritizing safety in order to strengthen public confidence in AV technology. Consumer confidence continues to be an issue, as evidenced by a recent Pulse survey conducted by NAMIC and J.D. Power. The survey found nearly half of all respondents would require 100% safety before they would even ride in an AV. But as J.D. Power's Robert Lajak told attendees at NAMIC's Future of Auto Summit, that's simply not realistic. This is the data that um, was one of the most surprising, uh, to me at least, uh, coming out of this. Maybe because I live 45 minutes from here at M-City, um, but we asked customers, you know, what, what sort of risk would they be willing to accept for these different scenarios? So risk to you, to a family member, risk to uh, others, such as pedestrians, and then risk to the vehicle. And you can see there at the far right that large proportion that say, my standard for this is 100% less risk, zero access, which is you know not feasible. Um, but that's, that's the standard today because I think the technology is so new, general, average customers don't know much about it, um, and benchmark is they hear about all the accidents and not, you know, the eight million trips that um, I can't remember if it was Uber or it was Waymo um, that they've already done. In another major finding, the survey reported that when it comes to reliable safety standards, consumers trust insurers more than any other source. To review the entire survey, just visit NAMIC.org. Sticking with auto-related news, a new report finds traffic crashes and related insurance claims are down in Georgia, thanks in part to the state's new hands-free driving law. 
NAMIC State Legislator of the Year, Representative John Carson, authored the law that was put into place this summer. Georgia State Patrol figures show fatalities from traffic crashes are down 11 percent through September 30th, which represents the largest decrease in 10 years. Carson says he's heard from several representatives in other states looking to pass similar legislation. What I would say, suggest if they wanted to do this, one, you, you, really ha- you just overall have to build a campaign. You have to say, you have to articulate that you have a problem. Then you have to articulate that this is the solution, or at least the best solution. Then third, you need to articulate there are no other solutions such as you know, driver education or something that just affects apps on a phone or what have you. And then fourth, you need to go out there and sell it. You need to sell it to the public. You need to sell it to elected officials that are willing to listen, willing to address this problem. Uh, and then five, I would say also on top of that, you got to get the victim's family stories. I mean, um, I, I'm a numbers person. Uh, but don't ever, ever underestimate how much the emotions of the tragedies will move the needle in regard to public policy more so than just numbers on a piece of paper. Carson worked with former triple-I head Dr. Bob Hartwig to measure the collision claim frequency and severity data needed to support his advocacy for the hands-free law. Dr. Hartwig also recently played a key role in working with NAMIC to assess the performance of mutual insurers. Now the director of the Center for Risk and Uncertainty Management at the University of South Carolina, Dr. Hartwig partnered with NAMIC to conduct a benchmark market analysis called the Mutual Factor, demonstrating the overall strength and stability of mutual insurance companies. On today's Unscripted, Chuck talks with Bob about how this first-of-its-kind report validates long-held assumptions about the mutual sector. Well, joining me today is Dr. Bob Hartwig. Bob, as we know him, um, is a longtime friend of NAMIC, friend of the industry, uh, a leader in our industry for 10 years as he was president of III. Prior to that, uh, he was with NCCI as an economist uh, working in the comp space. Uh, just an outstanding asset for our industry who did retire from his role at III and has moved on to other pastures, but still working with us in the property casualty insurance space. So, Bob, welcome. Hey, glad to be here, Chuck. So tell me about the new gig first. It's still relatively new. What are you doing it, it, and how it, do you like it? You know, it's hard to believe. I, I, well, first of all, I love it and absolutely no regrets about making the transition. Uh, I can't even believe it myself that I'm starting my third year at the University of South Carolina. I've got a lot of amazing colleagues, a lot of amazing students there. And in fact, uh, we even have students of NAMIC members there. So um, that's just fantastic, uh, being able to attract the, the sons and daughters of, uh, of executives uh, who they themselves are looking to pursue uh, a career in risk management and insurance. And I can tell you, we've got a lot of really bright students out there. Uh, don't listen to what you hear about those millennials. There's a lot of really good ones. Yeah, we were just talking about this. We're here at, our, uh, at the NAMIC convention the first day. Uh, in my remarks this morning, I introduced some St. Mary's uh, University here in San Antonio. They're risk management students. Uh, I met several of them. One is a recipient of the NAMIC uh, Merit Scholarship. Um, he had it last year. He's graduated. He's working for Marsh now here mm-hmm. in Texas. So I guess that leads me to where, you know, I think you'll have a great perspective. This insurance talent gap and what you see in the pipeline from uh, the Darla Moore School of Business 
How should we feel about it? What are we doing as an industry that's right, and what should we do more of? I, I think there's reason to be optimistic. Uh, certainly when I look at our program, um, uh, when I arrived uh, about two years ago, uh, we had approximately 150 undergraduate majors and minors. Today we have about 350. Uh, and we've quickly moved to the third largest program in the United States. So we're doing everything we can to fill that void. Are they calling that the Hartwig, Hartwig uh, it's effect? A, it's a Hartwig factor. I'm the taking Hartwig credit for it. I've had to add extra sections of yeah. both property casualty and life and health related courses. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's really great news. Um, there are a lot of students who it's only by virtue of the fact that they simply had never heard of or never considered uh, a career in the world of insurance and risk management. When many of them sit in a classroom and maybe just taking an intro RMI course as an elective, a lot of light bulbs go off in their head, a lot of things that they have never really thought about before. And a lot of students now uh, are thinking about careers. Again, we, we mentioned um, you know, insurers and brokers and risk management functions. We have increasing number of, of students going off to software companies that design solutions uh, for insurance companies that are even going off into insure tech firm startups. So in a lot of students these days, they have technology skills. They are the digerati. They've grown up uh, with technology their whole lives. And whereas if you went back 15 or 20 years ago, the top students all wanted to go to an investment bank. Uh, today, they want to have something to do with technology. And once you're able to, to take that concept of technology and tell them that this is an industry, quite frankly, that is at the cutting edge of technology and really always has, despite a reputation which I think is uh, not well-deserved, um, they get excited about that. And they also get very excited about things like capital markets, uh, uh, such things as uh, catastrophe bonds. I can't tell you the number of students every semester tell me, uh, they tell me, I never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. And they write their term paper on it. And they get interested in a career in, in finance as it relates to insurance. So uh, for me, being on the, on the other end of it now, um, I get a lot of psychic income. You don't become a professor for the actual income, right? So there's a lot of psychic in, uh, income associated with it. And, and students are in my class, all, uh, in my office hours all day long, looking for career guidance. And I'm very happy to give that. Well, you know, realizing that... Uh you have to rely on psychic income now, and you're barely getting by as a you know professor. We did throw a few uh, uh, few bucks, a few away shekels, because yeah, we wanted sh- yeah. yeah we wanted uh, your work with us on this kind of market performance uh, analysis of the mutual insurance industry. Uh, we're pretty excited about um, what it shows, and particularly your work with us. You clearly bring a ton of credibility since Triple I and your leadership kind of led this type of. Um, research and these studies uh, under your tenure, but can you tell us about what you did and, and what yeah. it found? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, after s- some discussions with you and, and others at NAMIC, you know, we decided to undertake a study that would really help show the relative performance of, of mutual companies and, and in particular against that of stock companies in the industry overall. And um, I've always been a longtime proponent of the mutual form of organization. In fact, in the classroom, I talk about that as sort of being the original and almost most logical structure for an insurance company. Uh, that po- underlying pooling rationale makes a lot of sense. You can it's see not it. fair that you can yeah. like pull your old uh, How to Survive 100 Years <laughs> presentation from the private sector <laughs> and put it into yeah, your uh, I, educational I, I, academic work. I actually do. I've had, a couple, I've had several NAMIC members in my classroom already this year, and they all like to brag 
brag about how they're over 100 years old. Um, and, and that's something you don't hear a lot of companies talk about. But in terms of this analysis, what I did is I basically looked at the entire industry, um, sliced and diced it into the mutual chunk, into the stock chunk, and the all other uh, component, and just looked at some large metrics uh, that you would typically look at, such as combined ratios, various expense ratios, uh, ratios related to profitability and growth. And what I did is I, I, sh I showed that, um, you know, there are differences between how mutual companies and stock companies and the rest of the industry perform, as you would expect. Uh, but there are logical reasons for the differences. So, for example, you might notice, for instance, that historically the, uh, the, the mutual segment runs a combined ratio, for instance, of about five points higher than that of the, of, of the, of the stock segment of the industry. Well, why is that? Well, about a point and a half of that is associated with the fact that mutual companies pay dividends, or many of them uh, pay policyholder dividends, and stock companies do not pay dividends to their policyholders by and large. Um, and you also see that there tends to be less fluctuation uh, in terms of pricing on the mutual side. So when there tends to be uh, hardening market conditions or when there's tightening of terms and conditions, you tend to see that there's not quite as much fluctuation on the price side uh, with respect to mutuals as you have on the stock side, which are very, very sensitive to quarterly earnings, of course. So you might see a little bit more of that being absorbed by the mutual insurer. So one way that uh, many mutual companies give back uh, to their policyholders is, is through the policyholder dividends or, in fact, through the absorption of some losses. So that has to drive up some of the loss ratios, for example. Uh, same thing on the profit. So that tends to have a tempering effect on profitability overall as well. You don't tend to see the same kind of oscillations. You don't tend to see the same sort of peaks uh, that you would see uh, uh, with respect to stock companies as well. But, um, but when you look at such things as growth of surplus, capital, capacity, and you look at how solid uh, the, the mutual segment is, you actually find, for instance, that uh, when it comes to how much capital is backing up each dollar of premium that's written, uh, you have mutual companies outpacing uh, stock companies by, by quite a significant margin there. So at the end of the day, while you see the mutual segment as uh, overall might not tend to be the fastest growing, uh, they tend to be the most long-lived. Uh, and that goes back to that study that you, uh, you mentioned a few years ago, Chuck, where I, I talked about why it is that mutual insurers tend to live so long. And I think my fundamental premise from that, and even today from this study, is that the management of a mutual insurance company sees themselves as a steward of that company. They don't see it as a way to extract resource for the resources for themselves over a certain period of time while they're at the helm. They see themselves as a steward to hand that company down to the next generation of policyholders and the next generation of management uh, in a manner that is better off than they found it, but in a way that is sustainable for the long run. That's a great way to describe it. And I think your point about the uh, combined and the way that uh, policyholders benefit from the mutual model, um, it's a, an illustration of what we talk about is our members' commitment to their markets, our members' stability, uh, in terms of the way they play in their markets. Uh, as you point out, they're probably less likely to make sharp moves, and we can all think about other uh, episodes in the last 10 years where, say, a new risk model, RMS 11 or whatever it was, came out a few years ago, and all of a sudden there were some really sharp moves that disrupted some markets, particularly coastal, coastal markets in that case. And the mutuals are a little slower, a little steadier, a little more committed to the policyholders and agents that they're serving that are, after all, their members. So... 
I thought it was interesting to see how that is kind of teased out in the numbers that you illustrate. It, it is, and uh, again, um, I've looked at mutuals for quite some period of time, and by that I mean over the last 10 years or so. But the reality of it is, is this is the way that mutuals have been operating and performing for more than a century. I, I think that also in the study we say that uh, that your your average mutual is over, your median mutual is over a century old. So, I mean, that is truly extraordinary. I don't know what the number is on the stock side, but it isn't even remotely approximating that. And uh, I really think that's unparalleled in just about any industry, including the banking business. Yep. So we're looking at other um, future reports similar to this, and... Uh, probably tracking this one over time as well to see how performance goes, uh, but also looking at some other areas. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on how this research might evolve over the next few years? Well, as you, as you mentioned, Chuck, you know, tracking the performance of mutuals over time is one thing that we'd like to do. Uh, this happened to be the first year that we did the study, so it's based on 2017 data, which was a bit of an anomalous year given that we had record to near record catastrophe losses. So everybody's results took a little bit of a hit last year. Um, uh, so I think that over time, uh, we'll be able to observe some smoothing out of those results, and we'll look at the relative performance of mutuals versus stocks in times when, uh, when the dominant issue is, is not particularly um, related to catastrophes. I am interested in looking at the, the relative performance of mutuals, for instance, over the course of the economic cycle. It's clear that mutuals have an advantage over the course of the economic cycle. The reason for that is, is again, if you look at that median mutual that's over a century, year, uh, century old, they have survived somewhere in the vicinity of 15 recessions. That's no small feat, including the great... couple world wars. Yeah, a couple <laughs> world wars, uh, uh, inflationary uh, bouts, all kinds of political turmoil. You, you name it, they have survived it, survived it at the national level and then at the state level, too. Countless, countless things that have happened there. Those are perilous waters to have to navigate over a, over a considerable period of time. So I think as we look over the next few years, we see a rising interest rate environment. Uh, it'll be interesting to look at the relative uh, comparison of, of mutuals versus stock company, for instance, there. That is one of the most significant things that we are going to see. Now, I think one of the things going forward that is a challenge facing everybody is going to be technology. It really is, a, it is an issue today. And uh, you do hear uh, from time to time that, uh, well, you know, uh, perhaps some of these uh, mutual companies aren't going to be able to keep up. They aren't going to be able to make the investments in technology that are going to be necessary to compete with the future. It's what is happening today is effectively the entire industry is almost outsourcing its R&D. All right. And what this means is that there's a there's a grocery store, uh, almost a Walmart of technology solutions that insurers big and small can go out there, test drive for a little while. Uh, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. There's almost no expense to them and much less in the way of time commitment and management distraction. And I think that uh, the fact that much of the technology that this industry is going to be using in the future is not going to be developed in-house and proprietary. It's actually going to be public source. It's going to be available for general use. Uh, I think this works to the benefit of the mutuals, and it allows them uh, to, to purchase those solutions at the scale that they need to compete with the big guys and all of those new types of risks that are going to be written in the future. Well, I think you've really uh, hit on a couple things that are important there. It's One, the way I like to look at our industry, as you say, um, we are adaptable. We do evaluate the things that are working we're not usually on the leading edge. We're not often in the 
you know, vanguard in terms of new technology, unproven, uh, you know, new tools for the industry. But once things are proven and they can be shown as beneficial to policyholders, to companies, help us anywhere in the value chain, I think our companies adapt them rapidly and use them. They just aren't in for the expensive, painful R&D process. Well, that, that's exactly it. And, and in some sense, there, there is an advantage uh, to being able to watch for a while uh, and see what happens. And the fact that many uh, mutual companies occupy uh, niches, the fact that many, many mutual companies uh, have a reputation uh, with their customers, customers are loyal, measured over the span of decades, the retention rates are through the roof, they'd be the envy of many other companies. Uh, that gives them the opportunity, as you just said, Chuck, uh, to uh, hold back a little bit and take those solutions that are going to best serve their customers over the long run. So just because you aren't the very, very first company to adopt a technology doesn't mean that you're going out of business tomorrow. <laughs> and I have a theory about uh, why there may be a difference between the um, approach of, say, mutuals and stock companies. It's that not having to talk with a group of analysts every quarter, mm -hmm. not have to answer the question of the analysts, what are you doing about InsureTech? How is InsureTech affecting your company? What are you doing to adapt to the future yep. with InsureTech disruptors out there? You've got to be the cool kid that at least says, our company is doing this, our company invested in that, our VC yeah. affiliate is engaged today. And the mutuals are like, you know, when we see it and it's useful, we'll acquire it. We'll, we'll, we'll acquire it. And they don't have to be forced into that premature posture of we're involved. It, it, exactly. And uh, it, it is nice to not have to answer every 90 or so days uh, to, to Wall Street. Um, and... Um, you know, when you're looking at technology in particular, uh, I have seen companies that have literally thrown away hundreds of millions of dollars on technology projects that never panned out. Um, but uh, so I, I do think it doesn't mean that there isn't execution risk. There's always going to be execution risk. And it is perhaps the case that for some mutual, there are some scale advantages that make sense for some mutuals to get together uh, and, and have some sort of, if not an out and out merger, some sort of cooperative arrangement. And that's just the way that, that Darwin operates in the space of business. That's completely fine. And we'll get new companies that start up uh, on, the, on the other end. Um, and, and in fact, I actually think when we look at the, uh, the insure tech space, especially as we move down the chain a little bit here, uh, I think it's most likely that uh, many of the startups will actually, that, that startup actually as insurance companies, uh, will in fact have attributes that are closer to mutual companies than, than to stock companies. So uh, that's, uh, and, and so they can scale up um, in some sort of mutual form, uh, and then we'll see where they go from there. But again, I think that is the natural form of things uh, in, in the world of insurance. Well, it fits with, um, you know, it's a long-term business, and uh, when you're managed for the long-term, you take the long view, um, it's an easier model to manage than one with short-term expectations for investors who are continually, yeah. you know, measuring your results against their expectations. And, and I would agree. And when you look at the issue of capital and capital adequacy, I already talked about how strong mutuals are, but if you even go beyond that, if you look at their reinsurance partners, the reinsurance partners are flush with cash. They're flush with solutions. They're flush with data and analytics. These are all uh, partners that uh, smaller mutuals and mid-sized mutuals can rely on. 
uh, and they do rely on. And you see many of them here at this event today, and they're a regular fixture at NAMIC events all across the country. And, uh, and whether we're talking about traditional reinsurance or other sorts of alternative capital that are out there today, again, I think these are partners and these are friends to the mutuals as well. Well, Bob, thank you for all the work you've done with our industry as a part of the industry at I, now as a part of the Academy, uh, researching it, and particularly for your research with NAMIC on our mutual industry. Thank it's, you very well, much. Well, that study's been a pleasure, Chuck, at any time. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for being with us on the podcast today. We'll thank see you. you. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with two members from the Advocates for Highway and Auto Safety. They discuss the effectiveness of distracted driving laws and identify some of the benefits automated technology will bring to consumers. And that's it for this episode of the podcast. Don't forget to tune in again on October 31st for the next episode of Insurance Uncovered. I'm Kathy Imus. Thanks for listening.